All right, grab your Bibles. We're going to get into the Word. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing today our series on the seven churches of Revelation. By the way, how many were here last weekend uh, and heard Dean Briggs speak here? Wasn't that a good message? Oh, I loved it. And it really dovetailed with what the Lord is doing in our church right now um, in the book of Revelation and, and what he's preparing us for. Listen, God is preparing this church. God is doing things within our church, and he's getting us ready uh, for some amazing things. And this um, teaching, this series that we're in, is part of that. Okay, so we're in the seven churches of Revelation. It's the beginning uh, part of the book of Revelation. And today we're going to look at the third church, which is the church of uh, Pergamum. Okay, um, so go ahead and put up that map of the, the region of, of uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, Jesus has a message in the book of Revelation for each of these churches. But how many know the message for these churches was not just for those churches at that time, but those are timeless messages uh, throughout history for all of church generation. And he goes in clockwise direction. We started in Ephesus. Uh, then last week was Smyrna. That's where the Smurfs live, by the way. Did you know that? <laughs> and then we're moving up to Pergamos. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are new to the series, it was in the year 96 AD, 65 years after the death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, the apostle John walked with Jesus and then Jesus ascended into heaven, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. 65 years later, John at this point is an old man, and John was exiled to the island of Patmos by Emperor uh, Domitian. And he's on this island. Jesus appears to this now significantly aged man and gives him encouragement, instruction, and counsel for the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And John at this point was the last of the OT the original 12. As the last of the original 12 apostles, all the other apostles had been martyred for their faith. All the other, the, the, the epistles had been written, the gospels had been written. This is really the last capstone piece, if you will, of what we have in canonized scripture. And so the law, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles had all been penned. And, and then Jesus from heaven, this isn't Jesus' message on earth to us. This is Jesus' message from heaven to earth. Kind of a final instruction for church history because that became the last part of canonized scripture. Again, Jesus has a pattern of exhortation that he gives to each of the churches. And I love this because he he always says, like, here's what you're doing well. Here's what you need to work on. Here's some encouragement. Here's some counsel. Here's some instruction. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you profusely. He loves the church profusely. In Scripture, the Bible is compared to um, an analogy is the bride of Christ. Like, Jesus loves his bride. Of course he loves his bride. He loves us profusely. He wants you to experience the, the maximum amount of uh, rewards for following him. How many of that salvation is a free gift? You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But how many know that God sees the things you do on earth and he recognizes the things you do and he won't forget those things that we do for him? That should encourage you. And so he wants us to have those rewards and he wants us to have complete joy, not just in eternity, but here and now on this earth. So I call it the Jesus love sandwich. What does he do? He, he gives them accommodation. He goes to the correction then he gives them counsel, and then he talks about the crown. Jesus acknowledges and praises each of the churches have a strength. He acknowledges and gives them, uh, praises their strengths. He confronts their weakness. How many know Jesus is not, a, not afraid to confront your weakness? 
Not because he's trying to guilt you, shame you, condemn you, but because he wants to draw us into truth, draw us into grace, and those things that hinder us, anything that hinders love, anything that hinders your relationship with the living God, he's willing to confront that thing. How many know that anything that can be shaken will be shaken, and he's willing to shake? And it's okay, because a father disciplines the son whom he loves, right? If you don't love your kids, you just let them run wild. But if you see them doing things wrong, you you bring correction. Why? Because you love them. Okay, so he confronts their weaknesses. Jesus then offers guidance. Praise God. Thank you for the guidance, Lord. And then Jesus encourages them with a promised reward. Hey, if if you stay faithful, if you stay courageous, there is a reward here. Okay, Let's go ahead and read uh, the message uh, to Pergamum, and then we will uh, we'll pick it apart. It's six verses. So we've got six verses, and man, as I got into this, I realized like we could spend weeks on, on, on just this one church, but we won't do that. It says this, to the angel, or the, the Greek word there is messenger. Um, in this case, it is the local pastor that is being talked about. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. How do you like that? I know where you, I know where you live, right? But in this case, it's an encouragement to them. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. It doubles down on that one. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you, Some, not all of them. I don't know the percent. Maybe it's 10%. Who knows? There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise otherwise I will soon come to, uh, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them, that group, whether they're genuine believers or not, it's kind of, we're not really sure. Um, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, the overcomers, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Pergamum was the most well-known city in Asia Minor. It had been, uh, each of the churches was known or had something significant about them that made them distinguished and stand out. Pergamum was the capital of the uh, Roman providence in Asia. And this is what one of the things that made them so significant. When John wrote his message to the church of Pergamum, it had been the capital for more than 300 years. So a well-established governmental center, well-established seat of authority in that region. If you think about 300 years, like the United States, since, since, since we've become a constitutional republic, has been 247 years. So this city, when John received this revelation, had already been the capital in, in Asia of, of Rome, the, of the providence in Asia, for over 300 years. So well-established governmental center, you might think of it as something similar to Washington, D.C. This is where the seat of authority was for that, for that region. Um, we have a, I have a couple pictures of Pergamum, which I'll just have them kind of scroll through while I'm 
while I'm just giving you some more um, context here. But you can see it's up on a, on a, on a high hill. They had a huge uh, theater there. The second largest library in the world was there. Over 200,000 uh, 200, volumes were in it. And when you consider that each of those volumes, they didn't have print presses back then. So if you consider that each volume had to be handwritten, and that's what it looked like um, back in, in uh, John's day. When you consider that each one of those had to be handwritten, that's a lot of volumes. In fact, the word parchment is derived from Pergamum. Um, it's derived from that. Parchment literally means the Pergamus sheet. And so it is this intellectual and literary center and governmental center uh, in John's day in that region. Perhaps more importantly and more prominent was that Pergamum was also a center of pagan idolatry, as all these, all these cities were, but this one in particular. Jesus himself refers to it as the place where Satan dwells. Imagine that, living in a city where Jesus himself says Satan lives there. I'm like, should we move? You know. <laughs> Are you sure you want, is it good for us to be here, Lord? You know. <sighs> Um, but he doesn't. He wants them there. I think Jesus calls it the place where Satan dwells for probably a number of reasons, but maybe primarily one of two reasons. Um, Smyrna was the first city to institute Caesar worship, but um, Pergamum was like where the center of Caesar worship was happening. And so it's the center of governmental control, uh, the center of the, the, the Roman Empire in Asia Minor um, and, and Caesar worship. And so Number one, that's probably why Jesus called it um, the place where Caesar was. But also, it is a hub for all kinds of idol worship. They worshipped many gods. Caesar was one of them. Zeus was a big one. In fact, some say there was a giant statue of Zeus there. The Jews of that day actually actually referred to it as um, Zeus, as Satan. You know, so um, lots of idol worship happening there. It's a hub for all kinds of idol worship. And um, you might think, oh, what's the big deal? Idol worship's no big deal. Well, Paul told the Corinthian church that when people offer sacrifices to an idol, even though it's a deaf mute idol, they're actually offering a sacrifice to demons. In other words, idol worship energizes demonic activity. And I don't know if you've ever been to parts of the world where they have like idol worship in these Buddhist temples and Hindu temples, but like the demonic activity is energized by the sacrificial giving of people in these regions. You can imagine how demonic this place felt. And in some sense, the Romans have this, this look of, they built this organized empire, vast structures, and were able to, um, there's this look of um, being civil, but on the other hand, they just look like absolute savages in this sense. I'll give one unhonorable mention to one of the false idols, not to be confused with an honorable mention. Pergamum was the center of um, Asclepius worship, Asclepius, which was believed to be um, the god of healing in that day. And so people came from all over the world to the temple of Asclepius to be healed, and they had to confess that Asclepius is savior. And Asclepius was believed to have the form of a snake. And I want, I want to see like, what you guys think about this. In order to be healed, this is what they did. They, you went to the temple of Asclepius, and they're like, you have to sleep on, the, you're sleep on the floor of this temple at night. And because they believed Asclepius was in the form of a snake, they had a temple, all these sacred snakes that they would put into the temple. And, and if you're lucky, one of these sacred snakes would touch you at night, and you'd be healed. 
How terrifying would this be? You're laying on the floor, and the snake, which they would because they're cold-blooded and you're warm and they're, they want to like warm up on you. Um, talk about the, the, the story of nightmares. Can you imagine being a child? Or like, sleep here. That child would be traumatized for life, okay? So clearly, very dark, very demonic place where false gods were worshipped. Um, another, another fact of worship in that day was um, was that they when they when they worshipped in these these temples they're offering um, sacrifices they're also taking mind altering um, drugs and different things that alter their mind the the Bible uh, the the word that it uses is pharmakia uh, where we get the, actually the word pharmaceutical but which by the way that's not a knock on pharma, pharmaceutical drugs but the idea is that they are altering their mind they're doing this worship and then they're engaging in temple prostitution. So like every kind of wickedness you can imagine happening in this place. But imagine this is the scenario and your church is in the city. Your church is in the city where Jesus says Satan lives there. Now it's important, I want to say it's important that we, I've always had a strong sense of where I need to live. Like my wife will tell you, if we've lived somewhere and I'm like, oh, we don't belong here. You know, I, like a city where we made a move. I've, I've always had a strong, like, conviction of where I need to live. And you need to have that conviction, too. Go where the Lord tells you to, to go. But I just want to say, don't just flee from an area because it's spiritually dark or spiritually bad. You need to consult the Lord and go where he tells us. Because God actually calls us as Christians, shining. we're supposed to shine light into darkness and not retreat from every part of society that has darkness in it. But you have to be wise, of course, and, and, and listen to the Lord. And so um, we're not called to just hide in a hole. He's, Jesus said to the church there, the ones who overcome, the ones who are victorious, I'm going to give these rewards to. He could have said to them, get out of that city because that's where Satan dwells. But no, Jesus called his disciples, his believers, to stay in that place and to contend in that place. Amen. So let's look at this message to them. Let's break it down a little bit. Revelation 2.12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus said, I bear the sword. Pergamum boasted that they, they, we have the sword. We carry the sword. We bear the sword. Because it was a governmental center, um, they, they, it, was, it was also center, um, and the largest center for capital punishment in that region. This would have been a huge encouragement for the church because the governor of Pergamum would have had what is called the right to the sword, which is basically this, that the governor could bring capital punishment on whoever he wanted. So as the center of governmental control of Rome in Asia, the governor needed to be able to strike down any uprisings or any, anything that brought disorder, disharmony to the Roman Empire. And Jesus counters this, and he says, guys, remember who ultimately holds the sword. Remember who ultimately has authority. In fact, these people wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given to them from heaven. Remember a few verses before this, um, what John said when he saw Jesus, talking about the sword. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held the seven stars. Those are the, the church leaders. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus said, I bear the sword. Coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. How many know that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword? It cuts and divides soul from spirit like 
the word of God is powerful. The Bible is powerful. The word of God is powerful. Man, he spoke the universe, as we just sang this song a little bit, he spoke this universe into existence. Okay, the word of God is powerful. Paul told the church in, uh, the, in Thessalonica that Jesus would deal with the Antichrist kingdom with his words. Watch, it says this, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. Imagine that. This one who, the ancient of days, who, who spoke and the world's, um, the universe was created, he will also end the Antichrist kingdom with, a, with the breath of his mouth, the splendor of his coming. Man, there's a sword in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And that sword can cut and divide and sometimes it... Sometimes it cuts me and cuts my heart, and it's in a good way because he loves me. Amen. So this would have been encouraging. So again, this is not part of the correction for the, for the church of Pergamum. This is not part of like, be scared of Jesus. because this is, part of, this is encouraging them. Why? Because they live in such a demonic city. They live in a place where Satan dwells, and Jesus says, I hold the sword. I hold the keys, right? So it would be encouraging them because they... We're living in a political and religious system that was opposed to them. Politics, economics, social status, and religion were all intertwined into this system. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, not even in days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus is saying this to this church, and, I, and this is what he says to us, I see you. I see you. I know what it's like in that city. I know what it's like in that family. <laughs> I know what it's like. And that, by the way, my mother-in-law is here today. Get, say hi to her. She's amazing. Amazing, beautiful lady. But he says, I see you. I know what it's like in that workplace. I know what it's like in that family. I know what it's like in that city. I know what it's like in that state. I know what it's like in that country. Like, I see you. I see what you're dealing with. I see the demonic principalities. I see what is opposing you. You need to know this morning, Jesus sees that struggle. He sees that fight. He sees that contention. He knows what you're going through. He sees the immense pressure that they were under to deny Christ, but he says, you've been faithful to me and you've, you've, you've stood with me. Listen, anytime you've made a stand for Jesus, when there was pressure to do the wrong thing, when there was pressure to deny him, let me tell you something. The Lord sees that. The Lord honors that. Amen? How many know that every city in the world has a different atmosphere to it? A different demonic principality, a different spiritual... I mean, you can drive from... You can drive through Colorado and feel it when you go into the different cities. Hey, this one feels weird, <laughs> you know. This one feels different. But listen, if you're called to that city, you have the grace of God to be an overcomer in that city. Yes. Okay, so greater is he who lives in us than he is in the world. So I'm not, I'm not trying to glorify the demonic. I'm just saying God sees like any atmosphere you're in. Maybe the workplace is tough. Maybe the family's tough. He sees it. There are cities in America where it's harder to live as a Christian than others. There are cities that like it's... Living out your faith is welcome and open. There are cities where it's like, it'd be pretty tough to openly like just live for God there. Maybe they'll let you confess Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But when you start standing for principles, man, that's when you're like, ooh, you're a whatever. You're a bigot. You're this, you're that. Like, you know what I'm saying? And so 
There are cities certainly around the world where it's very hostile to professing Christians and the persecution is intense. Now, speaking of honorable mentions, um, Antipas is this person who Jesus himself honors in the Bible. We don't know much about him, um, but the, the Greek word, my, he said, Jesus said this, um, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Um, the word witness is the Greek word martus, and it's actually where we get the word martyr. In fact, in the book of Acts, Jesus said, um, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. The word witnesses there is the Greek word martus, which implies martyr. You will be my martyrs throughout the world. How many want to sign up for that club? In a literal sense, many of them were martyrs, but also in the um, uh, figurative sense, how many know that we are supposed to be martyrs dying to ourselves every day and following Jesus, denying ourselves, following Christ, uh, being martyrs for the Lord. That's a, in another sense. We don't know much about Antipas. Um, according to Christian tradition, it's not in the Bible, so we don't know um, the 100% validity, but according to Christian tradition, the Apostle John ordained Antipas during the reign of Emperor Nero, and tradition tells us that they killed him by roasting him alive in a brazen bull-shaped altar um, in that city for casting out demons. There would have been plenty of opportunity for that in that city. A lot of demons to cast out. <clears throat> but we don't know that for sure. But the Lord Jesus honors him. And I picture the Lord Jesus in heaven. He says, here Jesus is in heaven speaking to John, right? And I, I hear him saying, like, you didn't deny my name. Even the days of Antipas, maybe just look to the left and like, oh, there he is over there, Antipas. Even the days of that guy who gave his life standing for me. Verse 14. Okay, he's, gonna, he's going to uh, highlight some opportunities for them now. That's a nice way of saying uh, he, he's going to confront their weaknesses. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching, teachings of the Nicolodians. Just kidding, Nicolaitans. <laughs> Don't hold to the teachings of the Nicolodians, all right? Okay, Jesus highlights two errors here, two doctrinal heresies. Some who hold to the teaching which leads to idolatry and sexual immorality and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay. Um, notice they are both teachings. He's, he, Jesus opposed to these two philosophies, these two ways of thinking, these two teachings. For simplicity's sake, these two teachings are essentially producing the same error. Okay. And I'll try to unpack them um, to the extent I can here today. But um, first of all, Balak and Balaam. If you're unfamiliar with the story of uh, Balaam and Balak, you can read about them in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and the very first part of chapter 25. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story, you need to read it. In fact, I just did a refresher on it yesterday because I was like, just want to make sure I don't make that story. It's a really cool story. But in a nutshell, here's what happened. The, ch the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And this you know, probably a million plus people are camp. Imagine if you're a king of Moab and all of a sudden a million people come and they're like hanging out on the edge of your territory. 
you might get a little insecure because they were bigger, stronger, more importantly, they had God with them. And so instead of, now listen, if, if you're a king, I'm just, I don't know, if you ever become a king somewhere, <laughs> and another group, bigger, stronger, comes and just, they're camping out on the edge of your territory, and you know you can't beat them, why don't you just go make peace with them and welcome them? And that probably would have gone very well for them. But instead of the, welcoming them and making peace with them, the, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, hires a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. We don't know if, we don't know, we knew, we knew Balaam didn't end well. The Bible speaks very negatively about Balaam because he became a prophet for hire to curse Israel. Um, it's possible that he started well. There's kind of debate on that. It's possible he started well because God did speak to him. He was in communication with God and it's recorded in scripture. And at first it seemed like he did well, but he did not end well. But long story short, he's hired for this to, to curse Israel. Long story short, he could not curse Israel because God wouldn't let him. And even when uh, he couldn't do it and tried to do it, God not only um, wouldn't allow him to curse Israel, God turned the curse into a blessing. Which, by the way, is a good word for some of you here. If you have people cursing you, listen, just stay under the covering of the Lord and he will turn their curse into a blessing. So how... He tries several times. He can't curse them. Balak, uh, Balak um, is going to leave. How does the enemy, how can the enemy curse you when God won't allow it? How can the enemy, how did the enemy curse Israel when God wouldn't allow it? He enticed them to curse themselves is what happened. Okay. It says that Balaam taught Balak how to lead the children of Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. This is what happened. It's, it's, if you read between the lines, you can kind of see what happened in the Old Testament. But Jesus explicitly says that, that Balak taught Balaam how to do this. But essentially, this is what happened. He says, this is what you're going to do. We can't curse them. The blessing of God is over them. We, we can't do it. But here's what you can do. I know what will bring a curse on them. Get them to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality and they will come out from underneath the blessing and the covering of the Lord. And that's how you can curse them. And it worked. So, so the strategy was this. Gather the young, pretty women. Send them into the camp of Israel. Take, take, let them go with some, some, some wine and some booze. Get the men drunk. Seduce the men. And then while they're drunk, while they're already messed up because they're engaging in sexual immorality, which messes up your mind, by the way, you're not thinking straight when you're, when you're into sexual immorality and you're, and you're drunk. When they're drunk and engage in sexual immorality, entice them into uh, engage into idol worship. So the guys are drunk. They're engaging in sexual immorality with these Moabite women, young, beautiful women that got sent there. And they're like, hey, I, I brought a, uh, one of my household gods, one of these idols. Hey, we've got this. This guy, you want to, let's bow down, let's worship, let's, let's offer a sacrifice. Oh, you, you serve the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew God. Okay, but we could also do this too. And so they're enticing them, and the guys are weak and vulnerable, and their, their guard's down, and they do it. And it brings destruction onto the camp of Israel. A lot of people died because of that. What did they do? They came out from underneath the covering of the Lord. They actually cursed themselves because they came out from under God's protection. And Jesus says, apparently, I'll, I'll, um, I'll apply this to the, the, the church there in just a minute. What about the Nicolaitans? Apparently, during that time, there was an 
evil, false doctrine being spread among some of the early Christian churches that basically said, you don't need to change your ways when you come to Jesus. Um, We don't need to make waves in these pagan cities by not worshiping uh, these false idols. Um, And the Nicolaitans believed this. They believed that their spirit and their body were completely disconnected, and it didn't matter what you did in your body, it wouldn't affect your spirit. Okay, I just want to tell you, that's a heresy. How many know that if you're engaged in idol worship and sexual immorality, it's going to affect your relationship with God? It will affect your relationship with God. Maybe you're still heaven-bound if you're a genuine believer and you place your faith in the Lord, but listen, it's going to mess you up. It's a, it's a false doctrine. So remember, in that, in that day, it was socially, economically, and politically important to be part of the pagan god worship. It was part of being part of the club. There was immense pressure to worship Jesus on Sunday, but then offer sacrifices to these other gods the rest of the week to keep your social status. I'll give you a word for this. The word is compromise. The word is, I can love God, I can serve God, but I'm, I, can, I can give some compromises in my life. Now listen, church. This definitely applies to us here today. And there is a false doctrine in the world. And there is a false doctrine that tempts us. That's like, I'm going to live for Jesus, but I can also kind of do this and be part of this. And listen, don't compromise. This is really the message of this church of Pergamos is don't live a compromised life. This teaching was like, you can have your cake and eat it too, but they forgot that Jesus is the cake. Amen. (laughs) And you can have him and eat him too, because he's the bread of life. Amen. We'll get there in a minute. If Jesus is God we serve, but we don't have to stop with this idol worship, temple prostitution, pharmacia, all this different stuff. This is why, if you notice, the, 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 the church of Ephesus, Jesus commended the church of Ephesus for hating the way of the Nicolaitans. It says this in Revelation 2.6. He's commending the church of Ephesus. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Apostle John was part of the church of Ephesus before he was exiled to Patmos. And so John probably saw this false doctrine from a mile away and said, ah, that's not good. And they learned to hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Listen, Jesus hated this false doctrine. He despised this false doctrine. Church, I want to love what Jesus loves. And I want to hate what Jesus hates. And if Jesus hates something, I want to hate that too. Lesson church, Jesus loves you, but he hates pornography. Jesus loves you, but he hates human trafficking. Jesus loves you, but he hates rebellion. Jesus loved the Nicolaitans, but he hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Let me give you a couple. Is this okay? You guys good? You all hanging on here? Some things God hates. We always think he's a God of love. He, he, he does love us. But he's also, he hates anything that comes between you and him. Anything that hinders love. Anything that hinders you from wholeness of heart. Really, holiness is wholeness of heart. That's what holiness is. It's like holy living is, I, I've, I've given my whole heart to God. He has everything. That's holiness. Uh, let me give you one cross-reference. Uh, uh, Jude, which is the, the uh, book right before Revelation. It's one chapter. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. I love this. Jude is like, I, 
I'd like to write to you about this amazing salvation we have, but I've got to address a few things, okay? He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Okay, this is the very similar to what the Nicolaitans were doing, and it's very similar to those who hold to the practices of uh, Balak, who is enticing them to sin. If you jump down to verse 11 of Jude, it says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed to profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. If you want another Another uh, cross-reference there, read Second uh, Peter chapter 2. It, it talks of, the, the book of uh, the New Testament talks about Balaam three times. Once in Second Peter, once in Jude, and once in the book of Revelation. And so if you want to read the other reference in Second Peter 2. Jesus is saying that this, to this church that there's some among you who are teaching it's okay to be a Christian and live any way you want. You don't have to change, you don't have to repent. Guys, the same spirit exists today in our world, and many Christians have taken the bait, and in some cases, some churches have taken the bait and reduced the gospel to self-help principles, how to have a better day. Listen, if you live according to the word, that actually is the way to happiness. Like, you will be happier, you will be blessed. Like, I'm, I, I love talking about those things. Those are good things. But we don't want to just reduce the gospel to some self-help book. Like, it is a way of life. It is a way of salvation. It is everything. I love the grace of God. I'm a grace guy. I, I love the grace of God. Um, the grace of God is an amazing gift. But when you use it as a license to sin, because oh, God loves me, he'll forgive me anyway, you're misusing grace. You're misusing grace. Now, um, there's a difference between, how many know that sometimes we stumble along the way? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, man, I messed up. I made bad, it was a hasty decision. If you're a genuine believer, you're trying to serve God, you love God, and you make a mistake along the way, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, of course, there's love, mercy, and grace. And even if you mess up royally and made the choice to mess up royally, yes, of course, the love of God and the mercy and the forgiveness is there. But when we begin saying like, yeah, it's fine because he will forgive me anyway. You are, you are misusing what the grace of God was intended to produce in your life. It was not intended to be a license to just live any way I want because God will forgive me. The grace of God was meant to transform you into a something from another world, a Christ follower. Amen? And so, and then what happened? If you do that, you live that way, you're coming out from God's protection just like the children of Israel did. Nothing in the world can curse you, but here they are cursing themselves by coming out from under God's protection. I'm talking about blatant rebellion, not just stumbling along the way. The grace of God is an amazing gift, but it's more than God's ability to just forgive us and look past our sins. Thank God for that. Amen? Isn't that good? I love that, and I return to that, and I will never stop loving that. But the grace of God is also God's transformative power to change you from the inside out. That's what the grace of God is. It, yes, thank God for the love, mercy, acceptance, forgiveness. He brings me in just the way I am. I can never earn it or deserve it. But then the grace of God gets to work on the inside and works to the outside. Amen? That's how we shine in a dark, 
city in a dark world. That's how you can stay in that workplace, stay in that home environment, stay in that city that God's called you because the grace of God is going to enable you to stand for Jesus in that place no matter where you go, whether here in the United States or around the world. I'll conclude with this. He talks about the crown to this church. He says, repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the word of my mouth. With the word of my mouth. Jesus like, the word of God sharper than any double-edged sword. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring correction. I'm going to bring um, refinement. He says this, verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Repent just simply means to change the way you think. Renew your mind, change the way you think. Subsequently, your behavior will follow. Okay, if you think you're going to change your behavior to change your mind, you're getting the cart before the horse. Change your mind, and then your behavior will naturally change. Hidden manna. How many know? He says, I will give you this hidden manna. Parker was just up here, and he talked about the secret place. You want the hidden manna? Go to the secret place. Those who dwell under the shadow of the Almighty, right? Well, let's read it. I just marked it in my Bible. Okay. <laughs> what a coincidence. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Whoever dwells in the secret place of the Most High, that's where the hidden manna is. The, Jesus is the bread of heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. And how many know that that bread satisfies? That will satisfy. Here's the promise of this, of, this, of this chapter here. He says, if you don't feast on compromise, you can feast on me, and I promise to satisfy you. Maybe I'll flip that the other way. If you, if you feast on the Lord Jesus, the finished work of the cross, and his love for you, you don't need to compromise and feast on the world. You can feast on Jesus. That's the promise. Day. Jesus promises to satisfy every need, body, soul, spirit, for those who refuse to live in compromise. Jesus isn't enough if you're living in compromise because you haven't let go of one branch. You have to let go of that branch and just hold on to this one, and he will satisfy every need you have in your life. It's not like the Bible is just trying to say, you can't have fun over here. God actually knows those things won't satisfy you. He's saying, the reason why I'm not satisfying you is because you're trying to do both. You're living compromise. Let go of that and come over here and I will satisfy you eternally. He says, I'll give you a white stone. I'll give you a quick context for that is that uh, in those days they, they had uh, juries and um, the jury would, would, would uh, cast a vote and by majority vote, you were innocent or guilty by the jury. But they would use, they had a black stone and a white stone. If you were innocent, they would, they would cast in the white stone. If you were guilty, they would cast in the black stone. Jesus says, I'm giving you the white stone. I'm saying you're innocent. This is what he's saying to you. And he says, I will give you this white stone with your name written on it. I think it was last week uh, Kate was talking about her and Dustin have like inside jokes, right? Every, every couple has inside jokes. Listen, Jesus has an inside name for you. An inside identity for you. It says this, known only to the one who receives it. There's a name that he has for you that's between you and him. I mean, you could tell other people if you want, if you know it. I was actually praying about this, and I asked the Lord, like, Lord, what's the name written on my white stone? And I felt like he gave it to me. So, and I'm not going to tell you. So, I don't know how to say it, but I know what it means. I know what it means. 
And so um, I think at the end of this series, we're going to get white stones. And I want, I want you to take these and ask the Lord, Lord, what is the name you want to give me written on the white stone? And we'll, I'm going to give you a couple weeks to marinate on that. But here's, here's what a name means. A name is your identity, your character, your nature. God has an, an identity, character, nature that he declares over you. And it's better than one you already know. Okay. I believe this is what God is doing among city lights right now. This, the book of Revelation, what, what uh, Dean preached last week, he's just preparing us for some great things. And he's saying, like, there's some things we need to repent of. There's some things we need to leave. And I had this picture this, this morning when we were in worship. Some of us have packed our bags. It's like, I'm ready to leave compromise. I'm ready to leave the world, and I'm ready to just feast on Jesus and stay with him. The bags are packed, and you're like, I'm diligent. I packed my bags, my bag. Yay, I'm ready. But you haven't actually left. And you've, packed your, you've made plans, but like, come on, guys. It's time to pack your bags and move out. Amen? Amen. I want you guys to stand on your feet this morning. I'm going to pray for you. Um, Aaron Miniger, come up here while I'm praying. Lord Jesus, we love you. I thank you for every individual in this house. Lord, I thank you for the finished work of the cross that you love each of us and you have amazing plan, purpose, and destiny for us. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you today. And I just say, if you're, if you're here this morning, actually just let's all just, if you can, I, those of you who are in the seats can't really do this, maybe you could step out. Just take a step forward. And, and just acknowledging, I'm, I'm coming out of compromise. I'm coming out of compromise. I'm, my bags are packed, but I'm moving forward. And so move forward in your heart. Move forward literally as an act of that. And um, amen. So Lord, we just refuse to live the way of the Nicolaitans. We refuse, God, to live in idolatry and compromise with this world. Lord, we choose to serve you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.